What's up, fight fans? I'm Michael Montero for Boxing Monthly Magazine and BoxingMonthly.com. Welcome to episode number 110 of The Neutral Corner. Quick housekeeping note, reminder, please find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Drop us a quick rating, review, a like, subscribe, follow, all that good stuff. And that's it for right now. Let's get right into it with some news and notes. Okay, so a few things to talk about, and uh, some of these things I'm just going to gloss over. Look, you guys out there, if you're watching this show, obviously you're a diehard boxing fan, and you've seen the videos on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that, of Floyd Mayweather jumping into a cage, and then there was a bunch of people reacting to it, and they made subsequent videos you know, responding, and I think he made a second one, and there's all this back and forth. Coincidentally... It happened not even 24 hours, I believe, after the announcement of the rematch between Saul Canelo Alvarez and Gennady Triple G Golovkin. Go figure. The biggest event of the year in boxing gets announced, and not even a day later, Mr. I Need Attention makes a video about him doing MMA fighting. I don't know. Look, Floyd is one of those guys that Anytime somebody is getting the spotlight in the world of boxing, we saw this with Manny Pacquiao for years. It started to happen with Golovkin and Canelo when they were, whenever they would announce something. Uh, Floyd's retired like 400 times, and while he'd be sitting on the sidelines doing whatever, he would do these sort of little publicity stunts, and he does it geniusly. Honestly, he does it. There's a subtle genius to the way he does it on social media because he has blindingly loyal followers that believe everything this man says. He could tell you two plus two is five. Most of us would say, Floyd, that's incorrect. But his followers on Instagram and and, and, uh, Twitter and all that, they'd say, yeah, you're right, Floyd. Two plus two is five. And they just go with it. They believe anything this guy says and does. And they're captivated by it. It's amazing the way that they respond to it, particularly fans who are 25 and younger. They're just they they're they're mesmerized by everything this guy says and does on social media. So there is a subtle genius to the way Floyd does his thing on social media, and that's pretty much how he promoted the fight with Pacquiao for about you know five plus years before it finally happened. So look, do I think Floyd's gonna fight in MMA? Me personally, no. But I've been wrong on so much Floyd stuff because it's hard to predict what the guy's gonna do. I understand that there'd be some money involved in it, but those of you who are talking about the big pay-per-view it could do and all that, you also have to remember, if it truly is a UFC fight, the way the UFC is structured, the company takes 70, 80% of the money. The athletes get less than a quarter of it. It's the complete opposite of what happens in boxing, where the promoter gets about a quarter and the fighter gets about three quarters. Obviously, I'm talking about star fighters here that, you know, a-level, elite-level fighters. So, and Floyd promotes himself, right? So he, he gives a little cash to Uncle Al for advising him. And he, you know, there was a time where he kind of worked with shadow promoters, but he promotes himself. He pays for the opponent, right? And he's keeping 90% of the money. He's giving a little bit of ducats to the opponent and a little bit to Uncle Al and, you know, a few little figures on the sidelines. And that's it. So he's had to give a bigger portion of the pie, you know, a few times, of course, for Pacquiao, for McGregor, although McGregor didn't get that big of a chunk of the pie comparative to guys like Pacquiao and stuff. 
Um, Miguel Cotto, uh, Can Canelo Alvarez, even though he was really, you know, not a star yet. Uh, he had to give a little bit of a bigger chunk in those situations. But for the most part, this guy keeps a massive amount of money. And I just don't think the money is big enough in, in MMA. Those fighters make really pennies on the dollar to what star boxers make when you're talking about actual purses and things like that. And look this stuff up. You guys, don't take my word for it. Um, they make a lot when it comes to advertisements and endorsements, however. That's a different story. But um, anyway, look, I, I don't think there's nothing to this, right? I'm not going to spend any more time talking about it. Personally, I kind of feel bad for Floyd. He didn't get a lot of hugs when he's younger. And I'm not saying this to, to in, a, in a jestful way, a joking way. Like, I, I honestly do kind of feel bad for the guy. It's obvious he has some deep-rooted psychological issues. Uh, he has father issues. He's kind of textbook. Uh, if you were, you know, a kid who's studying you know psychology Floyd would be a textbook case they could look at at entry-level psychology you know he has daddy issues and he has issues with needing attention and needing uh, to be constantly validated and everything and th there's some issues there I wish he'd take all that money and all this free time he has and see a therapist and work on some of this stuff because the guy's what 40 years old something some around 40 years old he's got 40 50 more years of life to live and why spend it being mentally ill when you can work on some of these problems and he's got the means to do it he's just got to put in the work uh but you know th that's what i see out of this so uh, enough of that all right seriously enough of it stop tweeting me videos of the guy going in mma cages i don't care uh, and if he does fight in the MMA, I'm not going to care either way. I, he fought his last boxing match, quote-unquote. I still haven't watched it. I still haven't watched Mayweather-McGregor. I have no interest. All right. So some of you have talked about this, and we've gone back and forth on Twitter. I triggered some of the New Yorkers who, uh, you know, I, I, I guess have had a habit of doing that recently. The fact that Canelo and Golovkin too, there's a small chance it could go to Madison Square Garden. And I talked about this in other videos, that it is a small chance it can't go to, to Dallas because uh, the AT&T Stadium, which is in Arlington, which is just outside of Dallas, is booked that week. But Madison Square Garden is available, and the people, the executives there have put up a, a substantial bid to make up for the added um, taxes and insurance costs and, and all that stuff that are associated with New York, and particularly with MSG. Um, you know, For me, the fight just doesn't make sense in New York. You don't get the parking revenue and all that stuff at MSG. Um, it's a pain in the ass for the majority of the fans who support this sport year-round, uh, which is in the southwest United States and in the southern if Texas and over. Um, that's where the majority of the diehard fight fans are, particularly when it comes to Golovkin and Canelo, the people that have been going to their fights in this region of the country for the last five, four or five years and buying the pay-per-views and stuff. And you're going to ask them to fly 3,000 miles up there and stay in overpriced, cramped, overrated, crappy hotels. You know, now look, if you, if you're a millionaire, New York is awesome. New York is awesome. You know, I could do the New York versus LA rant. I don't know if you guys want to hear that, but if I were a young male single millionaire, I'd much rather live in Los Angeles than New York. I think New York is better for single women, actually, and and LA is better for single men. But 
If you're a millionaire, either way, New York's freaking awesome. And if you can, if you have the means to go to a fight and stay in a really nice, uh, you know, if you could stay up by the park, you know, if you could stay uptown in a nice hotel and take a cab down to the fight or something and not have to deal with the subway and all that kind of crap, New York's freaking awesome. You know, if you're going there to party and hang out and stuff, it's awesome. You can have a lot of fun, you know. But when you're going there to work, it's a pain in the ass. And any of you who have lived and worked in New York or even had to travel there for work and work there for a week or two, it's a pain in the ass, all right? And then for us, lugging around camera equipment, laptops, all that stuff, and you're walking for a mile or so, either way, it gets to be a pain in the ass. And I would much rather, me being selfish here, Canelo Golovkin go to Vegas. As much as I don't like Vegas that much, yeah, I would much rather the fight come to LA, obviously. But uh, the people in LA haven't put up a bid. Uh, you know, as far as I know, they haven't put up a bid that's worthy. So uh, look, all this New York talk, it's still going to go to Vegas. It's going to go to T-Mobile Arena in Vegas. I understand why Loeffler and Gennady Golovkin's team would want to go to New York. It would be a more even playing field, they feel, there. Uh, Vegas is basically hometown territory for Canelo. And so it, L L.A. would actually be the most neutral territory if, if, you, if you think about it because Golovkin's based here. Canelo trains in San Diego, uh, which is a couple hours south. And, you know, he's Mexican. And this is there's a large Mexican-American contingent here. So probably more neutral territory in Cali, but it's just too expensive. It doesn't make sense. And right now, you know, there's just not the right arena for that kind of a fight. I've talked about Dodger Stadium. Doesn't quite make sense for a fight like that. You could, you'd have to scale it down and the seating would be weird. I'm not a huge fan of Dodger Stadium. It's old. It's outdated. It's historic and fun to go to for a baseball game. But for a fight, probably not the right setting. Now, in a couple more years, when the new football stadium is built here, where the Los Angeles Rams and Los Angeles Chargers are playing, big fights like that will start coming to LA in droves because you'll have the right type of arena for it. And uh, Dodger Stadium just isn't quite right for this. Madison Square Garden as an arena works better than Dodger Stadium, you know, head to head. Anyway, I'm blabbing about this and it really doesn't matter. We all know money talks, the fights go into Vegas. I'll see you guys in Vegas this May. All right, Daniel Jacobs will likely face uh, Maciej Sulecki. If I'm butchering that name, let me know. Polish fighter Maciej Sulecki on April 28th at Barclays Center. Talk about New York. And this will be on HBO. Uh, I'm sure this will be a double header. I don't know who else they're gonna put on that card. But man, look at the HBO schedule. Quarter one, quarter two right now. It's pathetic. It's just horrible. I like the Superfly 2 card coming up this month. And I like the Bevel Barrera fight that we're going to get in March. But then look, we're going to get this card in April, which is, you know, I think Sulecki is a, a good opponent for Jacobs. And there's a there's a Polish fan base that's going to come out for him there in, uh, in New York. Well, in Brooklyn. Uh, but... It's not a great fight. The best fight we have of the year is going to be on pay-per-view on HBO. So right now, Showtime is whooping their ass. However, this is the same thing we saw last year. And HBO came on strong in quarter three, quarter four, and Showtime waned as that money dried up. So we'll see if that plays out again this year. We'll see what happens. 
World Boxing Super Series Cruiserweight Finale is set. I'll talk more about this later in the episode, obviously. But May 11th, Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. It will be Oleksandr Usyk defending his WBC and WBO titles and unifying them with Murat Gassiev and his IBF and WBA titles. I bring this up not only to kind of preface the fight I'll be talking about later, obviously, between Gassiev and Dortikos, but because the WBA uh, made a ruling here and try to make sense of this, if you will. But Denis Lebedev has been named the WBA champion in recess. So Lebedev is 38 years old right now. Uh, he had that close loss to Gassiev in December 2016, which was only for the IBF title. Even though he had the WBA and IBF title, only the IBF title was on the line because apparently, I think it was, I think it was Gassiev, or yeah, Gassiev's team asked the WBA to recognize the fight as a non-title encounter. I, I'm not sure who's if it was Gassiev or Lebedev, but I think it might have been Gassiev. Um, don't quote me on I, I I can't remember off the top of my head which camp requested it. Either way, it was requested that the WBA not see it as a uh, title fight. And I, you know what? I think it was Lebedev because Gassiev was not the WBA mandatory. I think it was the IBF mandatory. So the WBA rolled with it and said, yeah, he's not our mandatory challenger. So uh, go ahead. This fight's only on the line for the IBF. So even though he lost... Lebedev did not lose his WBA super cruiserweight title, right? Meanwhile, Unier Dortikos, who I'll talk about in a few minutes here, he won the WBA interim cruiserweight title against Yuri Kalenga in a really, really tough fight, a brawl, in May of 2016. So it was that same year that uh, Gassiev beat Lebedev but didn't take his WBA super title. You guys staying with me here? So Dortikos wins the interim title. Gets bumped up to the full WBA titleist in September of 2016 with his KO over Dmitry Kudryashov, which was, of course, in the opening round of the World Boxing Super Series Cruiserweight Tournament. So, we have a situation here now where Denis Lebedev, who only had one fight in 2017, that was in July against uh, Australian journeyman Mark Flanagan, uh, wins that fight. And now, Gassiev, because he beat Dortikos, is the IBF and WBA titleist, which is what he should have been after the fight with Lebedev back in 2016, but now he is. Yet Lebedev, whom he already beat, is the WBA champion in recess. So, apparently, the winner between Oleksandr Usyk and Murat Gassiev on May 11th in the finale of the World Boxing Super Series has to negotiate with Team Denis Lebedev starting May 13, and they have 30 days to reach an agreement or it goes to purse bid. So try to make sense of all that, if you will. Now saying that, Dennis Lebedev is a good fighter, and he's still serviceable, he's still a top 10 cruiserweight, so I wouldn't mind seeing the winner of Usyk and Gassiev fighting Lebedev, particularly if, it's, if it is Usyk who wins because he hasn't fought Lebedev, so it'd be a new matchup we haven't seen yet. However, I'm much more interested in seeing some rematches of the fights we've had the last couple weeks in that Cruiserweight tournament. I'd rather see that. But, yeah, just try to make sense of all this if you can. All right, guys, that's it for news and notes right now. Let's get into the review of what took place last week. All right, so last Friday, 
February 2nd, there was a showbox card from Sloan, Iowa. And Ronald Ellis and Junior Union fought to a, I believe it was a split draw. Yes, uh, split draw. One judge had it for Ellis, 96-94. One had it for Union, 96-94. And then one judge had it 95-95. So uh, Ellis is 14-0 with two draws now. He actually has two draws in his last four fights. Uh, Union... Union is 13-0-1. This was his first real step up in opposition to any level. He had fought very, very weak opposition coming in. This was the first 10-rounder for both these guys. Um, it wasn't a particularly good fight. Neither guy really, really set themselves apart as the winner, so I have no problem with the draw. It felt like Ellis was a little ahead going into the later rounds, and Union, Union I keep saying Union, Union closed the gap uh, and, and pushed late and you like to see that in the prospect it was good on him but you know oftentimes we see two undefeated prospects fight like this and it's a narrow you know a close draw closely contested fight and they take this and they go two separate directions and they try to learn from it and move on and just we got it we got away there we didn't get a loss we just got a draw we're gonna move forward why not just do this again why not have these two fight again on another showbox card and see which guy can make the adjustments and show improvements. That's what I would like to see in more of these situations when we have two young prospects like this fight to a draw. Have them do it again and see who can make the adjustments. It's the type of situation we're seeing with David Benavides and Ronald Gavril who are going to fight again in a, in a week or so. And I, I know Benavides has a title. He's basically a prospect with a title, guys. They had a close draw. They're going to fight again. And we're going to see if Benavides can make those adjustments and really show that he is possibly someone to look at, right? Like he can move up a, le a level. Let's see that between these two. Not that I put these two anywhere near the same stratosphere as, as, as David Benavides right now. They don't look like nothing special. But maybe one of us, one of them would show us something if they do an immediate rematch. And one of them come. let's say... They just do another 10-rounder, and one of them comes out winning eight rounds to two or something and clearly makes those adjustments. Well, then maybe that's somebody to take a look at. But when their teams will play it safe and just go their separate directions from here, what do you really learn from it, you know? So anyway, so, uh, Saturday, we had a bunch of action. Saturday, February 3rd, uh, the O2 Arena in London prospects Reese Bellodi, who is a featherweight prospect, undefeated. Ted Cheeseman is a 154-pounder, a junior middleweight. He's undefeated. Lawrence Ocoli, Ocolier, uh, a cruiserweight, undefeated cruiserweight prospect. They all stayed undefeated and with big wins. I, I think Bellodi scored a, a knockout, a TKO stoppage. Cheeseman and Ocolier uh, scored, I think, decision victories. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. Uh, Step-up fights for Cheeseman and Ocolier for Belodi. Kind of a eh, type fight for him. Okay, Corpus Christi, Texas. There was a top rank on ESPN show, and it was just hot garbage from start to finish. It was just showcase after showcase after showcase. Now, here's the thing. This top rank on ESPN Endeavor is still young, right? I don't even think it's a year old yet. So not every single card is going to be a home run, guys. Not every single card is going to be, you know, 50-50 matchups across the board, world title fights, you know, top to bottom. But I can't really def defend this card. I mean, it started on ESPN News, and then it went over to ESPN. 
and there was kind of a break, I think, uh, because there was a couple knockouts on the, the undercard. They had it scheduled to go all the way up until the time they're supposed to switch over to the main network for the regular uh, card to show. But there was some knockouts, so there was kind of dead air. So what they did is they just jumped off the broadcast on ESPN News. It was maybe half an hour. And they were like, okay, guys, at I think it was here in LA, I think it was like 7.15 p.m. our time. They said, jump over to ESPN at 7.15 p.m., 10.15 p.m. on the East Coast. Only you flipped over there at 10.15 for you guys on the East Coast, and there was college basketball, two schools, I don't know who it was. Um, and that game went maybe 15 minutes late. Then they go to the boxing. So it's just this odd kind of thing. They're still figuring it out, okay? But I do like that they put the undercard fights on. They aired them, and it was on ESPN News. I, I like that they did that. So uh, Tiafimo Lopez scores the unanimous decision win over a Mexican fighter, Juan Pablo Sanchez, a fighter who had been stopped eight times. And, you know, with these Mexican fighters, it's hard to tell with the stoppages they have down there. Sometimes, you know, there's things going on. With it. Guys are learning on the job, whatever. But this dude has been stopped eight times. There's been eight times he hasn't made it to the final bell. Teofimo Lopez, a lot of people are really excited about this kid, but he should have been able to get rid of this dude. Now, he did get a cut, and it was a pretty nasty cut. I can't remember which round it was, but it was a pretty bad cut. He actually has a fight scheduled for March 17th, but uh, I don't think he's going to be able to do that fight. I think he's going to have to get stitches and fix up that cut, so he's probably going to be out for a little while. I thought, you know, for my taste, he was clowning around too much in this, uh, in this fight. I understand he's trying to make a name for himself and trying to get people excited about him and stuff like that. You want to clown around and all that, maybe during the ring walk and the, the announcements and all. Dude, go in the ring when, when it's time to fight and take care of business. Then if you want to show your personality and stuff in a post-fight interview or whatever, that's when you do that. But take care of business in the ring. Now, this was an important stepping stone for a prospect because he did get a bad cut. He fought through it. And that's an important learning lesson. So these are six good rounds. He got in rounds. But was there anything in this matchup that he could learn from other than fighting with a cut? I mean, stylistically, um, in terms of just craft, was there anything they were working on or trying? I, I saw a guy clowning around with somebody that was basically a sparring partner for him. That's what I saw. So I'm not ready to crown this guy the next big thing. And I know that he's out of Brooklyn. He's a Brooklyn fighter. And that part of the country that used to dominate in terms of uh, the, the American fight scene, it doesn't anymore. And they're desperate for new talent out there. And they want to anoint every prospect coming up out there as the next big thing. I'm not ready to crown this guy as a prospect that I'm really excited to see. Does a lot of things well, don't get me wrong. A lot of beautiful offense, punched, uh, has all the punches. Has some defensive liabilities though, and I don't think he's got the eraser. I just don't see the eraser there. So we got to see. Um, let's pump the brakes a little bit before we anoint this guy as the next big thing, right? He, he was in the Olympics in 2016, but he lost in the first round. Eh, there's not, you know, some guys don't have uh, the amateur style, so I'm not going to put too much on that. He, he was the 2015 Golden Gloves champ. So, I mean, the guy does have an amateur pedigree. 
There's a lot to like stylistically. We just got to see as he steps up in class how it plays out. Because again, I see some defensive liabilities and I don't see the eraser. Not seeing it. You couldn't stop a guy who's been stopped eight times. Cut or no cut. I don't know. Now maybe it's just a one-off and they're trying to work on some things and go rounds. We'll find out. We'll see. Also on the undercard on ESPN News, Jesse Hart, KO1, over a guy who's now lost four straight, but had never been stopped coming into this fight. I believe he was a fighter from Ghana. I can't remember his name, but uh, the guy's now lost four straight. He had, you know, th this was a layup for Jesse Hart, who was coming off a loss. So it's all good. You know, you're coming off a loss. This is the type of opponent you want to come in against. And Jesse Hart looked real good in this fight. Um, he called out Gilberto Ramirez after the fight, said he wants nobody else but Zerto. I like that attitude. I like that attitude a lot. He even said he turned down other title shots. He just wants Gilberto Ramirez. They had a very close fight last year. Jesse Hart showed a lot of heart in that fight with Ramirez, and that was his first big step up. He obviously learned a lot in that fight, and he's hungry for a rematch. And you know what? I want to see it. I like Jesse Hart's attitude. He also called for the Eagles to win the Super Bowl. Now, he is from Philadelphia. But uh, he called the Eagles to win the Super Bowl, and he was right. He called that, so we got to give him props. So that was it with the ESPN News portion of the card. And then it went over to mainstream ESPN. So right after the college basketball ended, they went boom, to boxing, and it was Jerwin Ancajas in the ring against Israel Gonzalez, where he scored a 10th round TKO win. And uh, I thought it was smart the way they did it. They delayed, they waited for the TV time to start just right, then they started the fight. So the, the people that were handling the event did it right, where you, know, you had a basketball game delaying things, and they did the timing as, as best they could. So again, they're figuring out that whole situation. But to the fight. First, before I talk about this fight, please, let's pump the brakes on these comparisons between Jerwin Ancajas and Manny Pacquiao. This is going to be the pump the brakes episode of the Neutral Corner, okay? And I've been saying this on Twitter and, and everywhere for a while now, before it was cool to say it or acceptable or safe to say it. Because now, and all the shows coming out this week, you're going to hear other people saying, let's pump the brakes, let's not compare them to Pacquiao. Now that it's safe to say it, because now this guy's been featured on American television in a... People really didn't know him the first time he was shown on ESPN on the uh, Pacquiao Horn co-main. I believe it was the co-main. People didn't really know him then. Now they know him and they were really looking for him, right? So all these you know shows and podcasts and stuff, this was their first real time paying real close attention. And... and I'm predicting you're going to start hearing more people saying, oh, the Pacquiao comparison doesn't hold up. You weren't saying that before, right? Anyway, yeah, what gave you that idea? Gee, I wonder where you might have heard that first. But um, anyway, yeah, I get it. He's Filipino. He's a southpaw. He likes to throw straight left hands. And his straight left hand, the way he sets it up and shoots it, does remind me of Pacquiao, okay? That's about it. That's about it. Doesn't have the same footwork, doesn't move like Manny, doesn't have the same hook, uh, doesn't have the same angles, does not have the same power or explosiveness. So in this fight, he dropped Gonzalez, who was making a quantum leap in opposition. I believe for Gonzalez, this was his first fight uh, outside of Mexico, at least his first fight in America. Correct me if I'm wrong, but off the top of my head, I believe it was. He dropped him in the first round. He dropped him twice in the 10th round. Uh, really good, defining 
closing knockout, right? Like a good highlight reel, sports center knockout in the end that ended the fight. Uh, good shot that he landed. I want to say it was like an overhand left, a counter that uh, put Gonzalez down, and that was it. Gonzalez showed some real metal in this fight. I thought this was his first big test. He was in there against one of the best, absolutely one of the best top five super flyweights in the world. He might be the best. We don't know yet, but he's certainly in the top five. And uh, Gonzalez hung in there and ate a lot of punches. One thing I noticed, guys, at the end of the fight, I looked at Gonzalez's face, and I didn't see any real noticeable swelling, cuts, bruising, nothing. And then Cajas landed a million punches on the guy. Now, everyone's genetics are different. Everyone's skin is different, the way it reacts. But again, with the Pacquiao comparisons, Pacquiao in those lower weight divisions punched like a mule. People think, oh, you know, you always hear the, the in Floyd Mayweather and Paulie Malignaggi made all that stuff up about how when Manny moved up to welterweight, he was knocking everybody out. That simply didn't happen. Pacquiao dropped guys, but wouldn't knock them out north of 140 pounds, really. But back in the, 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 the early part of his career, when he landed, it was devastating. And he really, really beat guys up south of 130 pounds. And on Cajas, I don't see that power yet. Or maybe it's just Gonzalez is an underrated fighter that showed us something, has good genetics where his face doesn't swell up or cut when he gets punched. Maybe it was just an off night. We don't know. The, the bottom line is we need to see more of on Cajas and pump the brakes on the Manny Pacquiao comparisons. And I'm one of those guys, I never understood why if someone's the same nationality as this athlete, why we have to compare them? The same nationality or ethnicity or whatever, why do we have to do that? So I get it. Stylistically, especially in boxing, there's certain cultural styles that fighters from different parts of the world have. I understand that. But I, I feel like there's just this rush. You know, Anytime there's a great Filipino fighter or, or a good-looking Filipino prospect, we got to compare him to Manny Pacquiao. Right. Uh, anytime there's a there's a another Russian heavyweight or some Eastern European heavyweight, we got to compare him to Klitschko. That kind of stuff. I just that stuff gets on my nerves because it's just it's just lazy. It's just a lazy way of thinking. There's probably several Mexican fighters or fighters from uh, different parts of Latin America, maybe even Eastern Europe, that Ancajas looks more like in terms of fighting style than Manny Pacquiao. It's just a lazy thing to go, oh, he's Filipino too, Pacquiao. Anyway, Ancaos is now 29-1-1 with 20 knockouts. He's only 26 years old, five foot six, which is a good height for that 115-pound division. He's very tall for that division. He's obviously going to swell up very soon. I don't know how much longer he'll be there. Um, Southpaw, this is the fourth defense of his IBF Super Flyweight title. Man, I'd love to see him against the winner of the main event of the Superfly 2 card coming up between Juan Francisco Estrada and Srisa Ketsua Rungvisai. Let's see him on the Superfly 3 card. Let's see if we can work that out. And I know that there's network issues there and promoter issues and all that stuff, but maybe we can work something out. I want to see this guy in with the best of the division. And as for Israel Gonzalez, young guy, made a big step up in class. I think he showed a lot of heart. Let's see that guy back on TV again. I think he earned it in this fight. Okay, main event of this card, Gilberto Zerto Ramirez scores a TKO 6 win over Habib Ahmed. 
Nope, I haven't heard of him either. Third defense of his WBO 168-pound title. So what was the point of this fight? To get Zerto on TV, look good against a cab driver, and make some money. That's pretty much it. Now, for the record, Ahmed was rate, ranked by the WBO. I want to say he was in the top 10. Uh, maybe, I don't, I don't know if he was top 5, but he was in the top 10. So this is a voluntary defense. This guy's in the top 10 of the WBO. You're the WBO titleist. Why not, right? I get it. But this is did this do anything to make Alberto Zerto Ramirez better? Did it do anything to improve this guy and get him ready for the elite fighters in that division? And now we've, we're starting to get a couple of guys that you know are, are proving themselves as top fighters in the division. So, so I, I don't think this did anything for him. Ramirez is very, very marketable. I like that his English is improving. A lot of some of you were really upset with my comments last week about fighters from different parts of the world who want to come to America, live here, train here, fight here, or maybe just come here to fight and then go back home, whatever, and want to be stars not speaking English. If you just want to come here, make money, be an opponent, go home, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that at all. You don't want to learn a, a lick of English. That's absolutely fine. But if your goal, if you've stated that your goal is to be a superstar, you want to be a star, you have to learn English. That's it. It's simple. Now, if you are a Mexican fighter, there, there is a huge Mexican-American fan contingent here, and you can get a certain level of stardom here, but if you want to have that crossover stardom, you got to learn English, you got to speak it. And Gilberto Ramirez does speak English, and he's getting very, very good with it, and he's getting more comfortable with it. Now, he will, uh, th there was a vignette on ESPN right before the fight, just kind of showing his background and just all the things he's been through, and he has a great story, and he did that in English. It's still broken, it, he's still working on it, so they put subtitles. But I'm telling you, that kind of thing is endearing to uh, fans who might not know who this guy is, right? It, it just reaches a deeper level with somebody when you can communicate, when you can reach them with your communication. So uh, good for him and good for top rank for trying to promote the guy. I, I get it, but you got to get him in there against better opposition, man. What are you waiting for? Like, seriously, what are you waiting for? Um, he's he's 20, He'll be 27 Later this year, 27 years old. He's got 37 professional fights. It's time to step up the opposition. Now, a lot of people have talked about why isn't he in the World Boxing Super Series? The Super Middleweight Tournament. And I've, I, I, I think there's a few reasons for this. I do think it's a missed opportunity. Don't get me wrong. But if you're top rank and Bob Arum, Todd DeBuff, those guys you go back to last year when that tournament was coming together. They were working on that ESPN deal, right? And I, now I'm not defending this, guys. I'm just trying to give you some explanations, okay? So don't jump down my throat. I'm not necessarily saying I agree with this way of thinking or not. But they're working on that ESPN deal. They have a Mexican fighter who speaks English, who's good-looking, he's tall, exciting style. They want to market this guy on American television. Richard Schaefer is attached to the World Boxing Super Series. And if you don't think that plays a vital, vital role in why that tournament's not on American premium network cable, you're crazy. And you don't know how the entertainment industry works, 
Okay, it's all about relationships. So you're working on this ESPN deal, and then you've got this tournament going on. You look at the fighters attached to it, and these people all talk. The promoters and fighters attached to it, it's mostly a European tournament. And the super middleweight tournament is essentially a UK tournament. All the look, the the finale is going to feature the semifinals, I think, has what three UK fighters off the top of my head. Yeah, three of the four fighters are UK fighters, and the championship is likely going to be between two UK fighters. So it's a heavy UK tournament. Maybe the people at top rank were not comfortable taking Gilberto Ramirez over to Europe, over to the UK quite yet. Maybe they want to build him up here in the United States. They just had him fight. They've had him fight in Vegas, I think. They've had him fight in Texas. They're building up, building him up in uh, parts of the country with a heavy Mexican-American population, which is intelligent. They're going to bring him back, I think, in a few months in Mexico, which is smart build up both sides of that fan base. Meanwhile, the guy works on his English still. He's got a good personality, a great story. He's fighting on ESPN. So that's going to get him in front of more American English speaking fans. I get the level of, I get the, the, the path they're taking this guy on. I get it. They're thinking long game. They're not thinking short game. In boxing guys, there's short game and there's long game. If they can do all this and build up Ramirez, he's not going to be a star, obviously. I'm not saying that. But if over the next year, or the rest of this year, let's say, they build him up. Meanwhile, you got the World Boxing Super Series, which is probably going to end up with Chris Eubank Jr. being the winner. Uh, I, I would imagine. But either way, it's going to be a UK winner. When you're ready... You make a fight, unified titles. You stamp your passport. You go over to the UK, which is uh, one of the hottest boxing markets on planet Earth right now, probably the hottest boxing market on planet Earth. And you go over there and fight. And you bring your two judges with you. And you try to unify the titles. And who knows what it could lead to. It could, it could lead to a trilogy. Maybe we end up, I'm brainstorming here, guys, just, you know, Work with me here. But if it's a close fight, let's say, early next year, next spring, between Gilberto Ramirez and Chris Eubank Jr. and they're unifying super middleweight titles, and it would likely be for the for the linear lineal championship, right? Because it'd probably be the number one and number two guys in the division. At least that's how most people would see it at the time. Okay, so you're going you're going for the lineal title, you're unifying titles in the UK, and we get a close controversial fight, they could do it again over there, and then they could do it again. So thinking long game, and let's not forget, Grandpa Bob has been in this business a lot longer than most of us watching this have been alive. That's how long he's been working in the business. He gets long game. So everybody pump the brakes. And chill with the Ramirez not being in the World Boxing Super Series thing. Now, having said all that, would I love to see him and David Benavidez in the World Boxing Super Series? Yes. Hell yes. But from a managerial, promotional, long game perspective, I understand why they may not necessarily be in that tournament right now. Okay. So also on the undercard, and I don't know if this aired or not, I can't remember. Uh, Jose Benavides, David's brother, he scored a TKO, TKO 8 win. He is now 26-0 with 17 knockouts. Okay, so let's go to Sochi, Russia. 
where Murat Gassiev scores a 12th round TKO win over Unier Dortikos to unify the IBF and WBA cruiserweight titles in an early fight of the year candidate. Um, I hope that this fight is topped. I hope we get better fights throughout the year. But regardless of what we get, this will end up as a top five candidate. It is probably the best cruiserweight fight since uh, James Tony and um, Vasily Yurov fought. And that's got to go back. That's got to be a decade ago, right? Maybe even more than a decade ago. And the thing about that fight was um, James Tony, you know, started as a middleweight, moved up to light heavyweight, wasn't truly a cruiserweight. You know, I look at Dortico's, Dortico's and uh, Gassiev. These are two cruiserweights. These are two guys who have fought in that division, and this was a title unification. I might put this above James Tony Vasily Giroff because I just feel these two guys are two better cruiserweights than those fighters were. And I know that might make some of you guys cringe. Some of you guys, especially, there's, there's a cult of James Tony. There is a James Tony cult out there. I may have just triggered you guys with that. But I'm going to go ahead and put this fight, I think it was better than Tony Yurov. Um, at least right there, neck and neck. It Really, really great cruiserweight fight, man. And let's give Abel Sanchez and Murat Gassiev credit because it's clear what their game plan was. And I thought Gassiev did show improvement in this fight. I thought he showed some nice defensive, I'm not going to call it slickness. I'm not going to call it elite level head movement because he has pretty much no head movement. But I talked about this. I made an immediate reaction video, so I'm not going to go into all the science of it. Just watch my immediate reaction video to see more of the detail with that. But he does little subtle things. There's these little nuances where he blocks and picks off shots. He might eat a quarter of the shot and block three quarters of it. He's willing to do that so he can remain in position to punch. I think the way you beat Murat Gassiev is to make him reset. And I thought that him fighting off the back foot early on, bringing Dortikos in, uh, set up his offense, Gassiev's offense, and his shots hurt more. He went to the body. He made his punches count, and it wore Dortikos down. So uh, can he do that against Oleksandr Usyk? Much different fight. If I'm Oleksandr Usyk and their team, I am uh, training to be in amazing cardio shape and to stay on the outside, to land hard, crisp shots. Usyk's punches are way straighter, harder and much more accurate than uh, Dortico's. And I think he's every bit as heavy-handed as Dortico's is. I think Dortico's power is a little overrated. And I, you know, look at who he knocked out. Dmitry Kudryashov, not exactly an elite-level fighter. And that's where everyone got excited about this big concussive power. I actually think Usyk has even power with Dortico's because the punches are straighter and they're more accurate. And I think he could stay on the outside land punches, and keep turning Gassiev and make him reset. So uh, early on, I favor Usyk in that finale matchup, but we'll talk more about that later. Uh, real quick, sportsmanship after this fight was outstanding. Dortigos had been talking a lot of trash to Gassiev uh, leading up to this fight. And after the fight, as, as he has just been KO'd. Uh, you know, it was a tough loss for him. Uh, he took a beating. He's never going to be the same as a fighter after this. He was crying. He was almost sobbing in the post-fight press conference. And Gassiev uh, comforted him and just came up and gave the dude a hug. And like, look, no homo. 
it was nice to see real sportsmanship. And when I look at the World Boxing Super Series so far, I talked about this in my immediate reaction video, the production value has been outstanding. And as much as I am upset it's not on American TV, if we get a stream like we got for this fight, the stream was flawless on Facebook, on YouTube, all of it. We had great streams. Um, I don't care if it's not on American TV. I'm, how many of you guys have uh, cut the cord on your cable? I'm this close to doing it myself. All this stuff that we do now is on social media, right? That's where we communicate. That's where the media is going. That's where guys like me screw regular media. I'd re much rather do my work here. I love doing my work with Boxing Monthly Magazine. Don't get me wrong. But I'm talking about traditional media in the sense of ESPN, CNN. That's, that's like a dinosaur. That's going out the window. And those people are panicking and freaking out. And they're jumping to crazy, crazy levels. Uh, just to create news stories to get people to watch. They, they, they over-sensationalize everything because they know this form of media is taking over. So if the World Boxing Super Series has terrific streams for their fights, I could care less if, if it's not on American TV. The production value has been awesome. The, the judging has been pretty good. I thought a couple of the judges were scoring this particular fight a little too close for my taste. But the judging has been pretty good. And uh, production value, sportsmanship has been awesome. And the fights have been good. So, so far, so good for the WBSS. Also on this card, uh, Roman Andreev, a lightweight prospect, improved a 21-0 with 15 knockouts with a TKO 9 win. And Maxim Vlasov. A veteran fighter who's kind of been around, uh, fought a lot of good guys between 160 and 200 pounds. Crazy, crazy, uh, the, this guy's weight span. He improved to 42 and 2 with 25 knockouts. Uh, you might remember him. Uh, losses to Isaac Chalemba and Zerdo Ramirez at uh, super middleweight before going up to cruiserweight. So he won the WBC silver title with a 10th uh, round stoppage win. I think his uh, opponent retired. So now, Dennis Lebedev, WBA champion in recess, Maxim Vlasov uh, has the WBC silver title. Those two guys at some point will face the winner of the World Boxing Super Series finale. Also Sunday, February 4th in Okinawa, Japan, Daigo Higa scores a first round knockout over the Mexican Moises Fuentes for the second defense of his WBC flyweight title. Higa is now 15-0 with 15 knockouts, only 22 years old. He's Japanese, he's undefeated, knocks everyone out. Do I have to compare him to Inoya Inoue? Do we have to start making those comparisons? Exciting fighter to watch, man. Uh, Fuentes has now lost three of his last four, and two of them were by KOs, both of those KOs in Japan. So uh, his career, you know, he might want to think about uh, slowing down. That's it for what happened last week. Let's preview what we got coming up this week. This Thursday, February 8th in Pensacola, Florida, Roy Jones Jr., 49 years old, that young, young man. He is fighting at cruiserweight in his hometown against an opponent who's lost six of his last 12 against a bunch of pizza delivery drivers. Why is this fight happening? I don't know, but it is, for those of you who are interested. Saturday, February 10th in Cancun, Mexico, from Cancun, Mexico, on BN Sports Espanol, Miguel Berchelt going up against Maxwell Awuku defending his WBC 
junior lightweight title. Um, Burchelt, you know, he had that breakout year last year with wins over Francisco Vargas and Takashi Miura. In my opinion, though, he kind of blew it by not going for the unification fight with Lomachenko. It was like, why not? Why not try to make that fight? It was really, really a win-win situation. If you lose to Lomachenko, but you're at least competitive or at least go the distance, that's more than guys like Guillermo Rigondeau can say, right? That's more than a lot of fighters. I think the last four fighters Loma's faced, he made him quit. So even if Burchell could have went in there and just saw the final bell, even if you lose, that learning lesson... Man, I just think that would have been good for his career. He kind of blew it with the momentum. Uh, Awuku is a fighter from Ghana who has fought outside of Ghana twice and has lost both times he left Ghana, and he will lose this fight. Also in Park City, Kansas, there is a CBS Sports Network broadcast. It's actually going to be a tape delay broadcast. Uh, undefeated prospect Nico Hernandez is fighting Joseph Achtai. Oof. A-J-T-A-I, Ajtai, I think that's how you say it. Anyway, Hernandez is 3-0 with two knockouts. Flyweight from Wichita, Kansas. He's 22 years old. Should bring some hometown fans out there for him. Should be a fun atmosphere. This is his first eight-rounder, a bit of a step up for him. He was a bronze medalist in the 2016 Olympics for, for the USA, and he fought in the World Boxing, or I'm sorry, the World Series of Boxing for the USA Knockouts team in 2015 and 2016. Didn't do very well in that tournament, which is kind of concerning. Uh, also, Miguel, Mickey Roman, fighting in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, coming off that big win off Orlando Salido in December. Hank Lundy is fighting Demarcus Chop Chop Corley in Philadelphia. Lundy, of course, is a Philly fighter. Chop Chop is from D.C., so that should be a fun atmosphere there. And an undefeated uh, Russian fighter, Shav Shavkat Rakimov, who's 11-0 with eight knockouts, 130-pounder, originally from Tajikistan, now lives in Ekaterinburg, uh, Ekaterinburg, Russia, is stepping up and fighting Malcolm Klassin, who is a South African fighter. He's been in with some good fighters, good quality, solid uh, pro fighter who will give uh, Rakimov some uh, some work. So um, and he's fighting in front of his hometown crowd, so that should be interesting. That's it, guys. Not a lot going on this weekend, man. As you can see, I'm, I'm digging through the crates to find these obscure fights in different parts of the world here. Uh, but schedule is going to start heating up the week after. So um, go to iTunes, Apple Podcast, drop that rating and review. I'm going to annoy the hell out of you guys until you all do it, because I know only a handful of you have done it. Also, go to SoundCloud, Stitcher, do the same thing. Guys, let me know what you think. Comment below, like, share, subscribe. I'll see you at the fights.